Welcome to the Practice of Theology. My name is Tyler Kirkpatrick, and in addition to hosting this podcast, I serve as one of the pastors of Cross Point Church in Columbus, Georgia. The Practice of Theology exists to help the local church engage theology on a deeper level and learn how it applies to daily life. Today I'm talking with Dr. Stephen Lawson about the life and theology of William Tyndale, which is episode three of our season on the Protestant Reformation. Dr. Lawson is the founder and president of One Passion Ministries in Dallas, Texas. He is also a Ligonier Ministries teaching fellow, professor of preaching, dean of the Doctor of Ministry program at the Master Seminary in Sun Valley, California, and host of the Institute for Expository Preaching. Dr. Lawson has written over 30 books, including The Passionate Preaching of Martin Lloyd-Jones, The Daring Mission of William Tyndale, Called to Preach, and many others. He also serves as the executive editor for Expositor Magazine. To find out more about Stephen, you can find him on Twitter at Dr. Stephen J. Lawson, and check out onepassion.org. As we begin our look at the various characters who make up the Protestant Reformation, there are few who are as interesting and crucial as William Tyndale. Yes, we are indebted to men like Luther and Calvin, but it was Tyndale who gave up his life to put a readable Bible in the hands of a plowboy. I hope you enjoy our time with Tyndale. All right. Well, Dr. Lawson, thank you so much for joining me on the Practice of Theology podcast. I am very much looking forward to this conversation. Well, thank you, Tyler, for having me, and I'm looking forward to this as well. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, our topic is on the life and theology of William Tyndale. But before we get to that, I want to give you an opportunity to tell us how you came to know the Lord. Certainly. Um, I came to Christ when I was 17 years old. And in reality, Christ came to me. Um, I was at a a youth camp in the summer before my senior year in high school. And I remember the speaker uh, spoke on John chapter 2, Jesus turning water into wine. Mm -hmm. And he spoke of how Christ took this, and I remember the exact words, dirty, dingy, stagnant, polluted water and transformed it into the best wine that headmaster had ever tasted. And the next chapter is about the new birth. And he made the parallel that that's what happens in the new birth, that God takes our dirty, dingy, stagnant, polluted lives, and he transforms them by his grace into becoming a new creature Mm, and into becoming the best life that anyone could live, which is abundant life, eternal life. And we were supposed to walk out. I was in Colorado and walk out. We're up in the mountains and just think about where you are with the Lord. And if you need to be born again, if you need to be saved, call upon the name of the Lord. And that message really hit me like a ton of bricks. Mm. I grew up in church, grew up in a Christian family, but and I never had done anything wrong. So it wasn't like I was some immoral kid, but I knew that my heart needed to be changed and that only Christ could do that. And it was all packaged together with eternal life and forgiveness of sin. And so I was um, born again and Mm. converted. Uh, to Christ. And I didn't know a whole lot of theology. I I just knew I was a sinner and Christ is a savior and that I needed this miracle to take place 
in my heart and mm. in my life. Yeah. And it's interesting. I just like immediately hit the ground running. And within a year and a half, I was publicly preaching and teaching for, for the Lord. And um, I, I think sometimes my greatest years of ministry <laughs> were those years that yeah. immediately followed. Right. Um, I didn't know a lot, but I, I, I knew enough to speak to people about Christ with an open Bible. So anyway, it's, it's always encouraging to think back to when you were first found by the Lord. Yeah, that's right. And brought into the kingdom. That's yeah. right. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. And so, so how long have you been preaching and teaching and uh, doing ministry? <laughs> <laughs> well, as I told you earlier, I'm a dinosaur. Okay. Jonathan Edwards is over my head and I actually knew Jonathan Edwards. Um, I have been preaching for 53 years, I think. Oh, praise I'm God. I'm 71 years old and I started by a strange set of circumstances when I was 18 years old. Yeah. And just kind of thrown into a pulpit because um, I played football in college, yeah. Yeah. which kind of opened doors for me. Doors that really should have never been opened, but they were opened. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm standing there, you know, with a Bible that has pictures in it and, and, and speaking to churches. Uh-huh. But that was God's plan for my life. And I'm so grateful. Yeah. I don't know that I would have done it other than God just threw me into kind of the deep end of the pool. Mm, mm, yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, and I think for a lot of us, that is our story. And, uh, you know, the Lord uses us in really miraculous and amazing ways, and He uses His people to accomplish His purpose and His sovereign will. One of those men is William Tyndale. So if you could, give us maybe a, a miniature biographical sketch of, of the person <laughs> Tyndale. So we'll obviously get into his theology and what he did during the Reformation, but just kind of tell us about the person yeah. Tyndale. Well, three things really intersect in this one person, William Tyndale, and it's really jaw-dropping that all three of these are true of one person. He was the father of the English Reformation. So we're talking about the Reformation. He was the father of the English Reformation. He was yeah. boots on the ground, um, that man. Second, he was the father of the English Bible. Um, over a hundred years earlier, John Wycliffe had translated the Bible out of the Latin Vulgate mm -hmm. into English, and it was a very dense and hard translation to work with. Tyndale was the first man to translate out of the original Greek and Hebrew. And he did such an amazing job that it's estimated 85% of the King James Version that would follow 1608 to 1611. They couldn't improve on Tyndale's work. Right, yeah. And so he really was the father of the English Bible. But in that process, he became the father of the English language, the father of the modern English language. Um, there would not even be an English dictionary until 1703. And he's doing his work in, you know, 1526 and 1527. Yeah. Um, and the first really English dictionary would be at the 
his glossary at the end of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus because he's having to create words that had not before been used. Right. Uh, atonement, scapegoat, ark, Jehovah, things like that. And with every line that he translated, he is standardizing the modern English language. And it's amazing that, that he did that. And his own name was spelled, you know, five, six, seven different ways. I mean, there right. was such a looseness about letters back yeah. then that formed words. But as he translates and as it's printed, that became now the way words will be spelled and the way words will be used. So just think about this, Tyler. For those three lines to intersect in one man is mind-boggling. Right. Yeah. That he would be the father of the English Reformation, the father of the English Bible, and the father of the modern English language. Um, and yet that is William Tyndale. So, I mean, he was a brilliant man. He was proficient in eight languages, um, which in and of itself is amazing to the point yeah. that if he spoke in any one of those languages and that was your native tongue, you would assume that he grew up next door to you. Right. Yeah. And he learned Hebrew at a time when there was, there was not one Hebrew teacher or professor in the whole nation of England. Yeah. And he began that journey at the university of Wittenberg, um, when he escaped England to go to the continent of Europe, but he was very self self-taught in that regard, which just adds to the layers of brilliance that uh, is associated with him. Um, I think the thing you would need to know, his life goal was that a plowboy in the field would know more of the word of God than the Pope in Rome. And he actually accomplished that goal. And in order to do so, he had to leave England because Henry VIII was on the throne of England. Right, yeah. And forbid there to be an, uh, an English translation because he knew he would lose control of the people if there was an English translation that was accurate. And he saw what was going on in, in Germany mm -hmm. with uh, Luther. And so he forbid it. So uh, Tyndale had to leave England and go to the continent of, of Europe and work underground. Um, he left at age 30. He never married. He devoted himself to this. He lived anonymously in back rooms uh, of houses and had to stay on the move to be a moving target, lest he be caught. Yeah. And for the next 10 years, that's, that's what he did. <laughs> and he was finally caught at age 40. And which is an amazing story in itself. Yeah. Yeah. And um, spent the next 18 months uh, in prison and then was martyred for his faith mm. um, in, in a gruesome way. He was hung around, hung by the neck. He was burned and they put gunpowder around his torso and he was blown up into so many pieces. There was nothing to, to bury. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know if that's it 
quick enough fly over his life or or not. He he died in 1536, just to give you a, a reference point, which is the same year John Calvin goes to Geneva. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, even in that Reformation period, one man goes down, next man stands up. Yeah, and, right. And God always has the next man standing in the shadows, ready to step into the spotlight. Yeah. So as Tyndale is martyred, Calvin, through strange providence, is is repositioned into Geneva. Yeah, yeah. So Tyler, that's just kind of, I can tell you more about him, but that you asked for a brief survey. Yeah. And you're talking to a preacher, okay? So that's as brief as a preacher can give it. And you've been preaching as long as Edward, so you've got a lot to say. <laughs> I, I actually do. <laughs> okay, so well, let's let's zoom in a little bit. So I think that is very helpful. I think, you know, you said one thing. You said he's the father of the English Reformation. And so maybe the average person in the church that knows about the Protestant Reformation, they would think, okay, well, what do you mean by that? So we'll get to that in just a moment. But before we do that, do we know how Tyndale came to faith, and and what was his theological upbringing? Well, he he went at at age twelve. He went to Oxford, um, and it would be like a preparatory school within Oxford, mm-hmm. and then graduated from Oxford. He's an unbeliever, and Oxford at that time purposely withheld the scriptures from the students until their mm. last year, at the very end after they had already brainwashed their students with a (laughs) a, a secular uh, worldview and way of thinking, he goes to to Cambridge and becomes a part of the White Horse Inn Mm -hmm. and in which there is Nicholas Ridley, there is Thomas Cranmer. Um, I mean, it's it's an all-star lineup. It's a small group Bible study, Uh the likes of which probably – the church has never seen uh, yeah. since the 12 apostles were in one yeah. small group. Bible yeah, study. right, right. Um, and it is believed that he came to faith in Christ at that time. Mm. Um, they were studying Luther's works that yeah. were coming across the English channel and the truths of justification by faith alone, uh, how a sinful man can be made right with holy God. And in the context of that, uh, he is converted. We don't have a lot of information. And like with Calvin's conversion, we basically have one paragraph in his introduction to the Psalms. Back then, right. they didn't talk a lot uh, like we do now today. About a moment of conversion. Yeah. It, it, conversion is a moment. Yeah. Uh, but we don't know exactly the day and the time. That's right. But it it's believed that while he was there at Cambridge in the fellowship with these other strong young men. Mm-hmm. And by the way, the Reformation was a college movement. It started out as a university movement with young men in their later teens and early 20s uh, catching fire uh, with, the, with the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. Mm. And it yeah. spread out from there. Um, so to answer your question, it, it, he came to faith during that time at Cambridge and he needed time then to process what is he's learned and what's happened to him. Mm-hmm. And so he, he leaves Cambridge and, and becomes a, a personal secretary and chaplain and tutor for uh, a very influential man who lived on an estate. And it was then he began to initially preach. Yeah. And, yeah. um, 
come up with this plan for the English Bible. Yeah. But go ahead, Tyler. Yeah. When he's serving in that role, that's actually where he gets in the argument where he says, mm-hmm. is, the, is that the moment where he says that he wants the Bible to be for the plowboy? Is that the moment where he yes. says that? Yeah, it, it is. Uh, the, the man uh, who owned the manor um, would invite guests over to the house That's and right. Tyndale yeah. would, right. would occasionally eat with them <laughs> and be a part of the conversation. Uh-huh. And there's a Catholic priest, you know, who comes over. That's what it was. And, and, and they get into this discussion uh, about the Bible and the word of God and the gospel. Mm-hmm. And the, the Catholic priest is very dismissive of the Bible. And it, it just jolted. Yeah, Tyndale, and that's when he gave the famous line that yeah. my goal is that a plowboy in the field will know more of the word of God than the that's right. than the Pope in Rome. That's right. Yeah, the the, the priest says, um, I think it's something like we can give up the commands of God, but never the popes or something like that. Yeah, yeah, no, uh-huh. exactly. Yeah, exactly. that's right. That's right. Okay, so uh, you did say that Tyndale was the father of the English Reformation. So what what was his role? in the Reformation? I mean, was it just this English translation? What, what do you mean when you say he's the father? Well, yes, he, he became the fountainhead in that he provides a Bible in the language of the people. He came to the realization that the whole nation was lost, mm. that, the, that the entire island of England is under a dark cloud of ignorance of the gospel and who right. God is. And he understood the only way that England could be converted and saved would be for them to have a Bible in their hand. He understood faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Right. So Tyndale was not really a preacher per se, though he did preach. Mm. Uh, He became the father in that he provided the... The, if you will, the, the, the sacrifice that was put on the altar that the fire would come and consume. Yeah. I mean, there, there would have been no, um, there would have been no Ridley and Cranmer and Latimer, uh, et cetera, to have their ministry without an English Bible that not just they would preach from with accuracy, but that the people could have access to and sit under the preaching of the word of God. Mm -hmm. So although their martyrdoms would follow later, uh, about 20 years later, uh, Tyndale is the, 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 the play, uh, the trailblazer. He he is the, the pioneer who went out ahead and, and cleared the way for the others to come in behind him. Right. Right. That's really helpful. So it, it, so in that sense, yeah. So it's not like he is, and he did preach some in London before he left, and he was preaching uh, in, the, in the region, which is near Gloucester uh, in uh, Western England. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he was doing some preaching, but he wasn't a noted expositor, let's say like Luther and Calvin and, right. and Zwingli. Right. Uh, though he could have. Uh, but his his contribution was with his his brain and his pen, mm. and and by that he was able to. He really was the one who struck the match that lit the fuse that exploded into the English Reformation. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, I read somewhere, uh, it may have been either in your book or an article that you wrote or somebody else who had kind of laid out his weekly schedule where basically Monday through Friday, he'd be working on translation. And then on the weekends, he would maybe write tracks. To me, that's, it's just amazing how, I mean, every moment of the man's life was really for the purposes of the Lord. I mean, he just gave himself totally over to obeying the commands of God and helping people do that as well, primarily through being able to read them for themselves. Yeah. And and just to add a footnote to that, he, he really had to remain anonymous. Mm. And so he never posed for a portrait. The two portraits that we <laughs> yeah. have of him, and I've got one over my shoulder. Uh-huh. Let's see. We go the other way. Yeah, there's, there's, there's Tyndale right there. That hangs in the London Portrait Gallery uh-huh. in London. He, he couldn't let anyone know what he looked like. Yeah, And so even these two portraits, the other one hangs at Merton College in Oxford, were painted posthumously. Mm. So it's, I, I don't want to give the, or for us to have the impression, he can just like mingle in the town square and just talk to people. Right. Yeah. Um, he's having to hide. He's an outlaw from Henry VIII. And there are multiple attempts initiated by Henry VIII and, mm-hmm. and the leadership uh, of the church in England to have him found yeah. and have him arrested and have him executed or brought back to England to be executed. So he's not able to, to like on Sundays, just do a whole lot of just, you know, in the town square. Go preach no, in a he, church. He, or, he's hiding mm-hmm. in, a, in a back room, uh-huh. uh, diligent a, about his work. Yeah, yeah. Well, and two... Uh, you know, you had mentioned he was essentially on the run for 10 years until he was executed, but he actually did try to go and ask them if they would let him do this English translation. And they said no. Mm-hmm. And it was from that moment on that they they sought to to kill him, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. He actually thought he would receive, he went to the Bishop of, of uh, London for permission, which he needed. Yeah, uh, to do the English translation, and he just assumed that there would be a yes, and everyone would would like be so appreciative of his desire. Yeah, but it was declined because in Germany, Luther's September Bible, it was published in fifteen twenty two September, um, had created such an uproar mm. that it led to the peasants' revolt in Germany and just social upheaval. Yeah. Um, kind of a class warfare type of thing. Mm. And so they were scared of the same thing to happen in England. And so he was denied um, uh, uh, approval. And so he continued to do some preaching there in England. And there was a businessman uh, who heard him and learned of his desire and in essence said, I will support you. Mm-hmm. If you will go to the continent of Europe and undertake this work, yeah. And so, what's interesting, Tyler, and it's it's just so contrary to even today. But no church sent him out. No group of elders laid hands on him. Uh, no denomination set him out. Yeah. This is Tyndale. He's a one man SWAT team. He he is a one-man um, Navy SEAL, if you will, parachuted yeah. into Europe to undertake this mission 
which is an unbelievable mission. Mm-hmm. And not just translate it, but you also have to have the typeset. You also have to have it printed. Yeah. You also have to have it put on ships. You also have to have it transported to England and to Scotland. It was a massive project. And so he doesn't have layers of people around him. Uh, He will eventually have one person who will kind of help him as what we might call a secretary. But he just undertook this on his own. And I find that so admirable that, you know, today, sometimes I think we want so much approval from so many people before we step out to take on a project. Yeah that we lose sight of the fact that there are times in history when it's one man against the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of like Athanasius, Contramunda, one man against the world. And Tyndale was one man against the world. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Oh, okay, so you've kind of talked about Tyndale as the Bible translator and the process that it took to get that into print. And so he did the New Testament first, and then he started working on the Pentateuch, right? And then Mm -hmm. he moved to uh, Joshua through 2 Chronicles, I believe. Mm -hmm. And then I'm kind of unclear. I couldn't really tell. When he was finally killed, was he working on the second edition of the New Testament, or was he still in the Old Testament, or was he just kind of doing all these things together? Um, It's all the above. It's all the above. Okay. So uh, let me give you a little more of the story. He he did the Pentateuch, then he did the historical section. Right, yeah. He then goes to Jonah, (laughs) and he translates the prophet Jonah. Uh Uh-huh. Because he wants to put the book of Jonah into the hands of English-speaking preachers Mm. to preach 40 days and London will be destroyed. Yeah. Yeah. 40 days and Liverpool will be destroyed. Uh, Mirroring the, the message of Jonah, 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. And so he wanted an urgent, passionate plea to go out to England with a sense of urgency, the immediacy of the moment that England would put on sackcloth and ashes mm. and humble itself beneath the mighty hand of God and, and call upon Christ for salvation. Yeah, amen. So he did uh, Joshua, uh, Jonah, and I think that's worth mentioning. Yeah. He, th- he, at the, he then does a second... Um, edited translation of the New Testament in which it's estimated he made somewhere between two to 3,000 edits. <laughs> oh, my goodness. To uh, Like an obsessive perfectionist mm-hmm. to dial this in as best as he can. Yeah. And then there was actually, 1534, there's actually a third uh, uh, translation of the New Testament where he upgrades it with a, f- with a few... Uh, you know, um, precision edits. So there were actually three uh, uh, versions mm-hmm. of that, and and he's he is um, arrested fifteen thirty four and taken to a castle and with behind a moat where he's held for eighteen mm-hmm. months. But um, anyway, that's kind of the rest of the story yeah. on that. It, if he could have stayed alive, it would have been 
incredible if he could have finished uh, the Old Testament. Yeah. Well, what's amazing, uh, well, it's all amazing, right? But one of the things that's really striking is that he, it, it's quite possible and likely it is that he's going from the Greek in the New Testament to the Hebrew in the Old Testament. But on that note, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, was Tyndale's Old Testament the first English translation or the first translation of the Old Testament that was actually from Hebrew? Oh, yes. Now, uh, uh, Wycliffe was working out of the Latin Vulgate. So it's still just an inferior uh, translation. Right, yeah. Uh, so Tyndale is the first out of the original Hebrew, and he had to learn Hebrew. <laughs> You know, without having, yeah. you know, the aids that we have today and professors mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. Uh, probably when he went to the University of Wittenberg, when he first got to Europe and made contact with um, Luther and Melanchthon, is probably when he was introduced to some access to some tools mm -hmm. of the Hebrew language. But he was only there for a short period of time. Yeah. And um, he actually was once shipwrecked um, while he's in this 10-year um, mobility moving about so no one can find him. He's shipwrecked and mm -hmm. his Hebrew tools are lost at sea. Um, that's, oh. And even when he's in, uh, in prison at the end in this dungeon, um, he's cold and he, he asks for a cloak. And he asked for someone to bring him his Hebrew tools, his yeah. Hebrew text and and um, some other things that would help him continue to sharpen his knowledge. Yeah. And who knows? You know, he's thinking maybe I'll escape someday, which he never did. Mm -hmm. Well, he's a man after Paul's heart for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so help us understand why his translation was so fiercely being opposed. Was was it theological or was it more class-based like you were saying, or is it, a, is it is it a mixture of both? Why the opposition and all of the time and money and the people that they sent out, you know, essentially bounty hunters, some of them who are a part of the church itself, what was being opposed here? Well, it it's really political and it's about control. And some mm -hmm. of those politics are in the church. Yeah. Uh, at this time, you know, uh, Henry VIII has repudiated uh, the Catholic Church because they wouldn't give him a divorce. Mm -hmm. And so he, he pronounces himself head of the, of the church in England. And um, they can control everything as long as the people remain ignorant yeah. Um, yeah. of Scripture. And the church service is in Latin. Most of the people don't know Latin. Um, and if the people have a Bible in their own language, game's over. Mm -hmm. And so we won't be able to keep lying to the people. Um, mm. And so that's why it was so opposed. And they were fearful, as I said earlier, of a peasant revolt in England like there was in Germany. They were fearful, like the Pharisees were with Jesus, of losing the crowd and, right. and losing the popular support of the people who were just following the leaders, uh, the, the priests in England, um, just really out of religious superstition um, and listening to old wives' tales being told to them. So Tyndale was a dangerous man because the truth will set you free. 
John chapter eight, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. So once people have a Bible in their hand, the con game's over. Mm -hmm. Uh, You lose control of the people and they can read for themselves how someone is made right with holy God. It's by faith alone in Christ alone. And and it's not through the mass and it's not through indulgences and it's not through the Virgin Mary and it's not through last rites and it's not through et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Joining the church, being married in the church. Uh, The Catholic church had seven means of grace. Right. None of which were a true means of grace. Right, right. And, And so Tyndale is a dangerous man because he is going to disrupt the system. I mean, he, he would be draining the swamp, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, with this translation. Yeah, yeah. No, that's really helpful. And that's, I think, an important backstory to understand as we talk about and think through Tyndale and his work. So why, and I mean, you've alluded to this, but I'm going to go ahead and ask the question anyways. Why did Tyndale see translating the Bible into English as something worth giving his entire life for? So, for instance, you know, why didn't he become a pastor and and just preach and help and teach people, why is it that translating the Bible is the most important thing that he can give his life to? Well, he was thinking big picture and larger than just one parish. Mm. He saw his entire nation uh, in darkness, spiritual darkness, ignorance yeah. of God, ignorance of the gospel. And the only way, the only way, that the nation of England could come to saving knowledge of Christ would be through the Bible. Mm. And, and so, and he was a genius in, in linguistics and he realized I'm the man for this. And, and so it was just, it it was the engine that was driving him, Mm. the engine inside of him. He was a driven man. And he would not take no for an answer. And so he was, um, he denied himself all these other things to carry this out. Yeah. So why was he so committed to this? Because he understood the nation is lost and they can't be saved. They can't be justified by God until they know the gospel and they know that they're sinners. And they know that the only way to receive the merit of Christ is through saving faith alone. That's right. And that message is in the Bible. And so that's why he was so committed to this. Um, And we understand that. We who believe the Bible, we understand this. Yeah, that's right. Well, and his life and his work really speak to his view of the authority and power of Scripture Uh, I mean, it really is one of those things, you know, yeah, you could have been a preacher and you could have preached really and truly the gospel, but the power of God doesn't lie in your ministry. It it lies in his word to his people. And uh, thank God for Tyndale and his understanding of that for sure. Yeah. So as we think about Bible translations in particular, I think all of us would agree that it is an amazing gift that God has given us and, and a great need that we have to have a translation of the Bible in our language. And so you and I, we speak English. I don't think I speak it very well. I'm from Appalachia, so I have my own kind of English, but I still speak it. And it's amazing to be able to just pick up the Bible and to read it and to understand it. The question I have, though, is why do we have so many different translations in English? And are we saying different things? 
And what would Tyndale think about all of the different English translations that we have? Well, we have different translations. One, the English language is somewhat changing, and so we need an up-to-date translation. Yeah. I mean, the King James Version, 1611, there are many archaic words in that. Right. And there are many archaic expressions and a lot of these and thous that are, are just almost painfully stiff. Mm. And it, it's not a good translation for the 21st century. Right, right. And so that's one reason that we need uh, an, other translations that are more up to date. The other is there's different philosophies uh, of mm-hmm. translation. And some are um, a very precise, accurate translation. Mm-hmm. Others are a dynamic equivalent that don't translate word by word. It's more like phrase by f- phrase and loses the accuracy in an attempt to be more readable. Right. And some even stray further away and just try to be cool and hip. Uh, some are gender inclusive and, and want to take out any masculine uh, reference. Right, e- right. Even to God referring to himself as as in masculine terms, and then even taking out uh, passages that would indicate male leadership in the church, uh-huh. exclusive male leadership in the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there is uh, an agenda behind some of those translations okay, uh, to bring almost like a feminist movement into the church. Right. Um, and at the same time, there are tremendous translations of, of the Bible that have no political agenda mm-hmm. um, other than to be as accurate and precise to the word of God as, as possible. And uh, others with an attempt to make it slightly more readable may at some points, uh, you know, restate some things in a slightly different way that for a contemporary ear is more relevant. Right. Right. So you've got a full spectrum from A to Z on, on these translations into the English language. And so you just need to decide what kind of a translation do you want? You want the most accurate. You want one that's kind of accurate slightly accurate or do you want one that reflects your worldview Mm -hmm. that has a a different perspective other than what the scripture teaches so that's why and and quite frankly publishers know that translations are a huge money maker and it bank it bankrolls their publishing house it's kind of like a football program for a major university it bankrolls the other sports. Yeah, that's right. If that's you have, right. If, if you have a stadium with 100,000 people in it, okay, we, we can now have women's volleyball. We can have women's softball. We can have men's tennis. You know, we can have men's golf, you know. Mm-hmm. And so a translation can, can really fuel uh, many other writing projects for a publisher. Yeah. And I, I don't want to give the impression that it's crass or that, but, but oh, it, right. that yeah. is the fact. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then to, and then to ha- convert it, that translation into a study Bible where there's all kinds of new study Bibles that are coming out attached with the translation. Yeah. 
yep. to the point now you can almost have a translation that's directed to left-handed grandmothers or something. Uh, you know, it's just <laughs> such a small little group of people that's, that's right. you know, some hot subculture. Uh-huh. Um, I'm exaggerating the point, mm-hmm. but you yeah, know, so right. now there's men's study Bibles, there's women's study Bibles, there's uh-huh. whatever, whatever. That's also another factor, and maybe I'm getting off the beaten path. Yeah. But you're you were pointing me down that path, Tyler. So. No, that's right. That's right. That's right. Well, and you know, just uh, to take a moment to all the left-handed grandmothers out there, we love you. <laughs> yeah, we do love you. But you don't need a study Bible. You could just use a regular one. It's totally fine. My grandmother was right-handed, but <laughs> anyway. Well, let me say this: in, in in a moment of recovery, when I get to heaven, I think the first person other than Jesus I'm looking for is my grandmother. Yeah. Who, who loved me so yep. incredibly and her influence is still upon my life. Mm-hmm. So yeah. let, let, let me toss that out there in, <laughs> in a right. moment That's of recovery. Right. Yep, yep. I grew up independent Baptist in uh, what was, when I grew up, a KJV-only church. So is there a particular translation of the Bible that is authoritative? So, you know, the KJV authorized version or, well, actually just you answer the question. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the King James Version has been greatly used by God o- mm. over many centuries. So, uh, you know, I'm I'm not on this to to throw shots at the the King James Version. Yeah, that's of right. The Bible. I mean, yep. God has used it for the salvation of sinners for centuries. Yeah, and for the I'm building up. Yeah, and building up of the church. That's right. Um, it's known as the majority text. Mm. And um, in my opinion, we have 101% of the Bible in Mm. the majority text. Mm. Uh, There are passages that are in brackets in most modern English translations, such as Mark 16, 9 through 20, uh, the beginning of of John 8, the woman caught in adultery, one phrase in the Lord's Prayer that Mm. were late. additions to copies of copies of copies that I think the consensus of scholarship today is that they were uh, scribal additions uh, for different reasons Mm. and that through archaeology and through uh, more manuscripts being found, Mm -hmm. um, even Dead Sea Scroll, that, that... the majority text actually has a few little extras in it. I know that's subject to uh, interpretation, and it's really brilliant men weigh in on this who are, yeah, yeah. I'm dependent upon the sources that, that I read for this, and most of us are. Um, so I, I prefer a different English translation. But mm-hmm. if you use a King James Version uh, the Word of God is contained in in the King James Version. I just think you have a little bit more than yeah. the Word of God. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, I think all of that's really helpful. I have three more questions, and you can mm-hmm. go as fast or um, as slow as you would like to, <laughs> but I yeah. want to honor your time. Uh, we talked about the end of Tyndale's life, so tell us just maybe pretty quickly about Harry Phillips. Mm-hmm. Well, Harry Phillips was an English son of a wealthy father and whose father owned a vast estate and through some financial transactions needed his son harry to 
go to London and to transfer money into his account. And along the way, Harry Phillips proved to be a very foolish son and began to gamble and ended up losing his father's money. And there's no way he can go home and tell his father what he's done. Mm -hmm. And the church in London finds out about this. (laughs) Naturally. Yeah. And they have him brought in. And they say, we want to make you an offer. We will restore the entirety of what you lost. If you will go to Europe and find William Tyndale and have him executed. Mm -hmm. So Harry Phillips is a desperate man, as you can imagine. And this is his only way to save face. And so he accepts the challenge, the offer. And it's really a a deal with the devil. Mm -hmm. So he goes to Europe and through different means of um, British merchants who are businessmen in Europe, connects certain dots and finds his way to Tyndale. Mm -hmm. Tyndale um, meets Harry Phillips. And Tyndale is living with some other uh, English businessmen in one large house. For us, it would be like a hotel. Yeah. And the businessmen warn Tyndale, don't be naive. There's something about this man that we don't trust. Well, Tyndale just may have been naive at that point and allowed a relationship and a friendship to build mm-hmm. until one day Harry Phillips says to Tyndale, let's go for a walk. Yeah. So Tyndale foolishly agrees and they walk through the streets and they come to a very narrow pass and Harry Phillips says, you go first. And so Tyndale goes first and there are soldiers waiting around the corner. And Harry Phillips comes in behind Tyndale and points over his head, indicating this is the man. Yeah, yeah. And as soon as they turn the corner, they arrest him and take him to um, a prison in uh, outside of Brussels, Belgium, that is fortified. And as soon as this is made known, one of Tyndale's um, uh, assistants, a man named uh, John Rogers, I actually keep John Rogers inside my preaching Bible. Mm. John Rogers would eventually become the first martyr burned at the stake by Bloody Mary, oh, wow. February the 4th, 1555, Smithfield, yeah. London. Mm. Well, John Rogers has been converted under Tyndale with in the confines of these uh, British businessmen. Mm -hmm. He gathers up Tyndale's work and escapes before the authorities can come and confiscate Tyndale's work. And it will be John Rogers who will actually 
complete the Old Testament. Yeah. Now, in between, there's a man named Miles Coverdale who will actually finish the Old Testament, but he did a very poor job. Mm. John Rogers will come back in and serve something like an editor and come in and fix the translation fallacies of Coverdale Mm. and produce what became known as the Matthews Bible. So there's a Coverdale Bible, and then there's a Matthews Bible, both of which flowing out of the Tyndale Bible. Mm, okay. And so John Rogers is a hero of the faith. I mean, Miles yeah. Coverdale is as well. He just wasn't a scholar. Yeah. John right, Rogers right. was a scholar and yeah. actually was competent and capable to finish the work that had begun by John Rod uh, by yeah. Tyndale. And so I love John Rogers, not to get off on his story. Yeah. But he is the first Marian martyr mm. burned at the stake. Um, and that's a part of the story of the English Reformation. And it will be his martyrdom, John Rogers, that will inspire Nicholas Ridley, Thomas Cranmer, um, those men to remain strong as they are held captive in Oxford, uh, standing trial, and would be burned at the same stake, mm. uh, Latimer and Ridley. And so there, there's like this domino effect that goes from Tyndale yeah, to Rogers yeah. to then uh, Nicholas uh, Ridley was the uh, leading um, architect of, uh, of theologically overseeing the church. And Nicholas Ridley was the greatest English preacher in the English Reformation. And Thomas Cranmer was the architect of the 39 Articles, mm-hmm. uh, a reformed state doctrinal statement for the Church of England. Um, that, that Again, this goes back to Tyndale setting in motion right. what would follow. Right. So, but yes, so Tyndale is taken to this castle and, and he's held there for 18 months. Mm-hmm. And he, and he writes a few more treatises, one of which was on justification by faith alone. And that mm. would be the last thing that would come from his pen. And he's very much in lockstep with Martin Luther um, in, in Sola Fide. And after 18 months, he is, he's taken out of the cell and he stands a heresy trial. Um, and he is stripped of, of his priestly ordination. Mm-hmm. He, he is stripped of his uh, position that had been given to him earlier. He's turned over to the, the state, which has the power of death. I mean, this is like Jesus's trials. It's like the, the Jewish leadership turning him over to Pilate. So Pilate yeah. can crucify him. Right. And right. so uh, Tyndale is martyred his last words oh god open the eyes of the king yeah referring to henry the eighth that he would see the value of an english translation well unknown to tyndale at that time coverdale had already received permission to have uh, uh, an authorized version of his coverdale bible 
yeah. printed. So God yeah. had already answered the prayer as Tyndale <laughs> prays it with his last breath. Yeah, that's right. So anyway, I'm just kind of wrapping yeah. uh, this up for you, Tyler. Yeah, and that's great. <laughs> you, you told me I could take a shorter as long as I wanted. <laughs> and it's that's just, right. I always take the path of greatest resistance. So yeah, I went that's the right. long route. That's right. That. All right. Well, Dr. Lawson, uh, calling an audible, final question. If Tyndale could stand before us today, what might he say to Christ Church? He would definitely say that God put the power into the Word of God. Mm. Not in your methods, not in your programs, not in your gimmicks, yeah. not even in your building. Yeah. God put the power in the Bible. Yeah. You need to clear out all this other distraction that's going on in the church and get back to the Bible, which is yeah, what the yeah. Reformation was. It was the greatest back to the Bible movement in history going back to the first century. So yeah. Hebrews 4, verse 12 and 13 says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. For there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Mm. There mm. is no other instrument in the world. That's right. That can cut to the bone and fillet the heart and bring eternal life. When God chooses to germinate that seed that has been sown into soil that has been prepared by the Spirit of God. Yeah. So we need to have a back to the Bible movement again. And we have drifted far, far away from that, Tyler. That's right. And that begins with the pulpit, mm -hmm. which is, as the Puritans would refer to it, as the primary means of grace. Yeah, that's right. And we are just into so many other things. There's so little Bible preaching today. Mm -hmm. We've given up Sunday night preaching. We've given up midweek preaching. We've given up uh, Bible conferences. Sunday morning mm -hmm. sermons are getting shorter and shorter, being displaced by more and more announcements and stuff yeah. and stuff and stuff. Yeah. The average yeah. Christian sits under such little Bible preaching. Yeah, that's right. That no wonder we're so anemic and, and so weak. So what would Tyndale say? We got to get back to the book. Mm. We've got to get back to the Bible and specifically back to the preaching of the Bible. And when you study the Bible from cover to cover, what you see is God's prim primary means of grace throughout the Old Testament was to send prophets to say, thus yeah. says the Lord. Yeah. To send his own son. God only had one son. He made him a preacher. He prepared his way. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. With a voice, not a puppet ministry, with mm -hmm. a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Jesus spent mm -hmm. three years training men to preach. He commissioned them to go out and preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The book of Acts, one out of every four verses is a sermon. 
you just go on and on and on. Um, we need to come back to the Bible. Mm-hmm. We need to come back to the preaching of the Bible that has a, a unique force and penetrating power about it. Yeah. Uh, the reformers, virtually to a man, were preachers of the Word of God. Yeah, they, they weren't right. just sitting in ivory towers, uh, parsing verbs and disconnected from people. They stood in pulpits and they preached the Word of God. That's right. So, what would Tyndale say to us? We've got to get back to the book and we've got to have more preaching of this book, which is the mm. God ordained means primarily for the dissemination of the word of God. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, that's, that's right. That's what I think he would say. And of course it's speculation. What that's would right. he say? <laughs> that's but right. When you put, put together arguments from what has been said mm-hmm. by him and others, that's, that's, that's what it would be. Yeah. Uh, I mean, L- Luther said the church is, is not a, 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 a pen house. It's a mouth house. Mm-hmm. And by that, he meant it's, the church is not a book club where we get together right. and read. Right. The church is to be the place where you hear the preaching of the word of God. And Luther went so far as to say the church should never meet if there's not the preaching of the word of God. Mm-hmm. Well, that would shut down a lot of programs. Oh, and yeah. It would shut down a lot of activities. He said, there's no reason for the church to ever meet for anything if the word is not being preached. Mm-hmm. So I know you're talking about the Reformation and I, I'm bouncing over to Luther, but I think because Tyndale was converted under Luther's books. That's right. And, and because Tyndale mirrored Luther, who translated the Bible into the New Testament, even so Tyndale, the New Testament and parts of the Old, I, I, I think, and because Tyndale went to sit under Luther and to meet Luther, I, I think that the case can be made. We've got to get back to the Bible and we've got to get back to the preaching of the word of God. And we need, we, we need men who are actually preachers. Right. Yeah. To, 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 pre- to, to preach the Bible. Yeah. So anyway, I'll, I'll not continue my, my uh, thoughts on all this. I've, I've got much to say, but Tyler, I'm so grateful to have this opportunity to, to visit with you. Yeah. And I, I hope God will use you in a great way to spread the truth of the Reformation and whatever other projects you undertake. That's right. Well, this is all for fun. I am a preacher, I'm a pastor, and my desire is to preach the Word of God. Amen. I love hearing that, Tyler. That's right. That's right. So, hey, Dr. Lawson, thank you so much for joining us. It really has been a joy to hear from you and to learn a little bit more about William Tyndale. Okay. Every blessing to you, Tyler. God bless you. Thank you. You as well. Thank you.